Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. While some of the initial challenges that food and beverage startups experienced when the pandemic began have subsided, like restrictions on sampling and freezes on category resets, others remain and new ones have emerged complicating the path to market and raising the bar so that success is harder to achieve and takes longer to attain. According to cultural anthropologist turned business strategist James Richardson, fallout from the ongoing pandemic, including lingering supply chain challenges, shifts in consumer shopping habits, and new macroeconomic realities, has brought to an end the, quote, glory days of massive expos, end quote, where he says individual entrepreneurs and small startup teams with little more than a prototype who go head-to-head with legacy brands to catch the attention of buyers and score massive distribution or investment. He explains the preferences that consumers, retailers, ingredient suppliers, and co-manufacturers gave to larger, established brands capable of keeping store shelves stocked during the panic-buying phase of the pandemic has permanently changed their appetite for and how they evaluate quote-unquote unknown startups, making it more difficult for emerging brands to get on store shelves, secure time on shared production lines, and by extension, make their case to investors. At the same time, Richardson adds the same high-level economic headwinds forcing established brands to raise prices and trim underperforming products from their portfolios are also squeezing industry newcomers, But without the benefit of scale or established consumer demand, many startups have fewer options to protect their margins while simultaneously ingratiating themselves to retailers and shoppers. But as Richardson explains, there is still hope for industry newcomers. They just need to be a little more patient, professional, and creative in their approach. Strategies for which he outlines in his book, Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve, and shares in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. One of the most fundamental and impactful consequences of the initial surge in consumer demand during the first few months of the pandemic was a shift in what retailers were stocking. So initially, this was driven by what was available, with big players having more to offer and small brands suffering more for shortages due to their lack of scale. But Richardson says this has now become a permanent change, much to the chagrin of emerging brands or entrepreneurs looking for their first big break at retail. I think the permanent change, or the semi-permanent change, Elizabeth, is that there's less linear shelf space for startups at chain retailers full stop. And that's because that surge that we saw in the more in the spring, that mostly stayed. It's still there. So that whole if you imagine the whole baseline of CBG just went up double digits, low double digits, it stayed there. So the easiest way that chain retailers have to solve that is to allocate more space to the big brands that are moving much more volume and that's exactly what they did. So, you know, there's fewer slots. You know, American supermarkets have been overstored, and there's excess square footage for 25 years. People have been writing about. <laughs> so, so what's happened is that 
we had a situation where the actual demand is now meriting the square footage for the big graph. And the, the, pre, the pre-pandemic habit of taking fees and taking on startups to fill shelves, you know, that, that need is less on the part of the larger chain retail. So they're going to be pickier. It's going to be harder to get on. Ongoing labor shortages at retail will reinforce this shift by reducing pressure to restock, Richardson says, explaining that if a brand has more facings, even if it's selling faster, store associates won't continually need to run to the back for more product as they might for a small brand with only one or two facings. So while this might frustrate some entrepreneurs because it's harder to get on shelf, Richardson says it's ultimately better for the CPG ecosystem because it will require a higher degree of professionalism and proof of concept before distribution, potentially saving entrepreneurs from failing because they grew too fast and they couldn't support their product or their clients. A safer, more sustainable route to market, according to Richardson, is to prove the concept and build an initial following in select retailers or ideally online, where competition isn't as cutthroat before approaching larger banners. In the end, that's probably better for the total ecosystem because you're going to find that, I mean, just in aggregate, the buyers are going to pick the teams that that are acting more professional sitting in front of them. Because now they have the reason to be more picky. And I think that's probably better for everybody in the value chain. So the glory days of the massive Expo West where there's, you know, all these people starting startups on credit cards with no experience. Um, and getting quickly off the shelf if they just put keto in the package. I think a lot of the I mean, that's largely over. <laughs> Everybody's a lot more rational than they used to be. Um, and I think, in a way, it's forcing people to do what I advocated in my book, which was before the I wrote it before the pandemic, and I and you know because it was already proving itself out, which is that unless you have a frozen refrigerated product that's got a ninety day shelf life, you should be building your business online first, or through very ancillary channels to get your cash flow going, to get fixed costs covered to build a consumer, an early consumer base. Then you go into retail and deal with the markups, the fees, etc. I was already an advocate for that before the pandemic, and like I said, the people who were doing that uh, fared better. And part of the reason is that they had, they had balance. They had some channel balance that means that they have control over a shelf, a digital shelf, that nobody can really take away from them. Right, Lays can't come into Amazon and take away your access. <laughs> um, they certainly can't do anything about your D2C site if you can drive traffic to it. So it makes it more important to have, in a way, this is like a physical shelf. Or this is like a, a retail version of the revolution in in uh, advertising that occurred when you could create owned media channels like your email list, right, for your business. 
When the Internet allows you to create your own media channel, which is, began with an email list right, of, of customers, then you, you had a power. You had a marketing power that no one else could touch. They could have no influence over it. You know, whereas a smaller business's ability to, say, buy cable advertising time in a local market, it's, you know, it's constrained by budget, but also by everybody else, all the big boys and girls who want to get in there and throw money around. But not with your email. It's very similar to that. When you have D2C sales, you have a D2C website, you have this ability, as long as you can drive traffic to it, to have more control over your face. And balancing that with select retail is becoming the preferred way to launch uh, and scale in the early phases. I mean, the days of just, the days of pure retail launches, I think, for, unless you're in specific temperature states, um, are over. While building a new CPG business online may be easier in some respects than breaking into a brick and mortar store, it certainly has its challenges, including, of course, shipping costs and logistics. But Richardson says these are manageable if planned for appropriately. Shipping costs continue to come, to come down. I mean, they've gone up because of the pandemic in the near term, but long term they're coming down, right? So it's not as bad. Um, it all it all comes down to what is the case pack price you can move. You know, look at liquid amount, liquid death water. You know, they had a three million dollar year one, which is totally aberrant, I'll admit. Um, but it can come out of the gate relatively fast, not even as fast as that. Um, it's not impossible to have a break even case pack price. But remember, what liquid death was doing was selling cases. They didn't sell a single candy on the internet. And so basically they were saying, they were goading you. They're like, you, okay, you want to do this? Then you got to commit. And your commit price is, I think, one of the places stock. Otherwise, go away. <laughs> um, and it worked. <laughs> so, you know, at $26, I imagine they could, they could fund the shipping on the admittedly heavy product. Do they, are they making a ton of money at that point? Probably not. Um, but there's a way to do it. I Another limitation of online is maintaining temperatures for fresh and frozen, which Richardson described as brutal. He also noted that it's symptomatic of a larger unexpected consequence of the pandemic, which is making it harder to innovate and bring to market new products in the frozen and refrigerated sections. You know, one of the darker things, I think, if you are in refrigerated or frozen as an entrepreneur, then you, you, you really don't have the ability to do D2C without a massive amount of capital raise. Um, the number of people who are going to be able to successfully scale in those temperature states has probably gone down because of what I'm talking about. You know, I haven't seen anybody in D2C frozen that can break even before like 10 million. And that's how brutal it is. When you add refrigeration and freezing and, and ice packs and stuff, that's when the shipping gets insane. Um, and the co-packing of the storage and everything else. So, you know, that's a rich person's game, for sure. Uh, but I, I still think you can do uh, – the majority of folks are not in that situation. They have a D2C uh, channel potential. I think the question is, are you set up to really – do you have the heart and the passion uh, for marketing? Because if you don't, like liquid death 
clearly, you know, almost had too much of. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to work. You're going to be very disappointed. Another unexpected side effect of the pandemic that is negatively impacting early stage growth companies is booking time at co-manufacturers and packers is now more difficult and more expensive. Richardson explains that this initial surge and now ongoing labor challenges mean larger players are leaning more heavily on production partners, edging out brands with smaller runs. Co-packers, as I learned, through my network, they you know they raise their minimum order quantities. So they got you got retailers, <laughs> retailers who um, have fewer slots for smaller brands are being pickier, and then you got co-mans who are overwhelmed with the surge as well, and so they're going to just raise the minimum order quantities on the smaller brands, and especially in categories like liquor or anything with cans. So that also is another constraint working against really stage companies. What this means is not so much that you have to raise $30 million to start, not at all, but that you need to be a lot more professional than, say, 10 years ago. Increased production expenses are far from the only cost increases with which CPG companies, both large and small, are grappling as inflation continues to rise. However, unlike established CPGs who have the, quote, privilege of passing additional costs to consumers through price increases, retailers and shoppers will have less of an appetite for this from emerging brands. The good news, according to Richardson, is emerging brands are in their own price universe and may not need to raise prices to preserve their margins to the same extent that larger players need to do so. But, he says, they still need to take care when setting their prices originally. The price, the taking pricing, quote-unquote, that the big public firms are doing is a privilege of being the market share leader for the, uh, for the most part. Um, and they're able to pass those those costs on to the consumer. But, you know, that doesn't really change the pricing strategy for a premium brand because, you know, if Highlands Ketchup takes 5% pricing, but you're already 85% over them, I mean, you can do the math. The gap didn't change much. <laughs> so, so generally, startups are in their own pricing universe. And, you, you know, as I write about in my book, most of the big issues for a premium price brand, they haven't really changed. You need to, you need to find a price point that eliminates uh, the thoughtless sort of random buyer <laughs> um, and encourages people to actually look at the package and read the symbolism and understand why they're paying this much more. And that's always going to be true. And the reason you need that premium price and that selectivity is because that's what makes your balance sheet work as a small business. You, you can't, starting off, you can't, you have to raise millions of dollars to launch a consumer brand if you wanted to launch it at a Walmart price. Because you would not make money for years and years and years. And so you have to fund that loss. And that's just not realistic. So that, that part of the 4P reality hasn't changed. And while Richardson says he isn't a huge fan of using price promotions to drive trial, that strategy can be effective when demos or other options are sidelined. Promotions, yes, have been harder to get executed. Um, they were removed by certain chain retailers temporarily. But a lot of that has come back. Um, it's come back now. 
there was a te- the Omicron Delta surge caused a little bit of that to to, uh, to drop, so maybe some people lost some promotional cycles. But if you look at it on a one to two year basis, most early stage companies that still have the ability to do promotional pricing. Now, I'm not I'm not a bull in promotional pricing in the early years. I think you need to be moving most of your volume at full price because you want consumers who really, really get your innovation or will pay almost anything for it. They're much more likely to become habitual users and it's that habitual repeat purchaser I write about in my book that you want. Uh, driving the sales volume in the year of use. And so that dynamic hasn't changed. Uh, it's nice to be able to get those spike volume-based promotional spikes like two for X, uh, which is the one that works the best, I think, for both the brand and the retailer because it encourages people to buy, to stock up, essentially. And the more you have in your house, the more likely people are going to remember to keep eating your thing that they just learned about. Um, you know, so most of the things I talk about in my book haven't really changed. The fundamentals haven't changed. Another trend that's emerged in the past two years that may appear harmful for startups on first blush, but is actually a blessing in disguise, according to Richardson, is a drop in venture capital and private equity funding for early stage businesses. I think that some of the big venture capital deployments like million, two million, five million dollar checks that were going pretty freely, to be honest, in the teams. <laughs> um, they just don't seem to be happening nearly as much. That's, that's my take, and I could be wrong. We're doubling down on the stuff on the businesses that are already doing well. So, I think the VC folks who play in CBG have unfortunately learned the hard way, and they're just being more selective. And they're probably pulling up their minimum revenue before they want to get involved. So, you know, yes, institutional money is probably harder for the young folks to get access to, harder than ever. I think it's probably good, actually, for them. Because uh, I don't think they want to work with those guys. Not, not right away. I don't, I don't know that... There's a certain part, there's a certain element of needing to figure out a bunch of stuff on your own and being able to sell your own business and sell yourself to buyers and yada, yada, yada that you kind of have to be able to pull off to be a successful growth company in the early years. Um, and it's a test of your team. And I think you will come out stronger um, by not having that heavy-handed involvement. And honestly, the folks that I see who get involved with tiny companies, they tend to be, <laughs> uh, for better, for lack of a better word, they tend to be more predatory. Because you're dealing with, I mean, who would invest a million dollars in a totally inexperienced team with no track record? With a small business. It's one thing to invest a million dollars in a, in a team with no track record when they've built a $15 million business that's growing, if you follow me. So the folks that you tend to attract early on um, probably are the ones that you want to attract. It's much better to go and chase angel money 
uh, as a small business because you're gonna your goal is to prove to them that you will you're a good bet. And I think that requires you to come off as more professional. And I'm back to that thing, which is <laughs> the ecosystem is encouraging people to come off as more professional um, to get access to resources. And if there's a time down the road where you get bigger and you want and you need to raise $20 million, um, if you've been able to get the thing to grow, especially exponentially up to that level, without a lot of outside it, hand-holding and minimal financial capital, people are going to be incredibly impressed. And it, it is possible. But what I like to tell people is that you've got to have a product whose design is doing an enormous amount of the work for you. It's generating a very high repeat rate. Because when you do that and you, and you get traffic to your website, traffic into stores, the flywheel will take off and you have a much more financially efficient business. That doesn't require a lot of expensive marketing to, to, to grow. What happens with a lot of startups is they're in this 500,000 to a million range and they are growing in the low double digits and, what, and they're not barely able to cover fixed costs or not able to. And then they start taking out debt. And they take out debt to survive. And Basically, that will end because there's a certain point at which the non-growing business will no longer be able to service the debt, and it all, it's all over. There's thousands of companies that end that way. So, you know, that winnowing process is important for the ecosystem because it forces people to build things that have the design at the core. And it penalizes people without experience who are doing Me Too ripoffs of something they read in a magazine. And there was a lot of that before the pandemic. <laughs> a lot. And those are the folks that are hurting. Because you know, the world didn't need the 29th jerky brand. This doesn't mean that companies need to bootstrap. Richardson said that angel investors still appear to be active and crowdfunding is becoming a more popular and viable route for the smaller amount of capital that most early stage companies need. Ultimately, all of these challenges, while uncomfortable and disruptive, are manageable, according to Richardson, but he says entrepreneurs will need to be more patient, more thoughtful about their research and product development, and more professional in how they present themselves to buyers, consumers, and potential investors. While that is all we have time for today, if you're interested in learning more about how to overcome these challenges, Richardson's book, Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve, is packed with case studies and advice and is available on Amazon. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope that you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week. <music>